Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. This is probably the center of the message of Romans and maybe one of the most glorious passages in the whole Bible. So we've been marinating in this text for the past three weeks. We're going to read 21 through 26 again, and specifically we're going to zero in on the last two verses, verses 25 and 26, before next week we finish out chapter 3. If you're new with us today, we encourage you to use one of the Bibles that you can find in the chair rack in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep that Bible as our gift to you. I think you'd be really helped to just follow along with your copy of God's Word in your lap and you actually seeing the words. That's really, really helpful for you to become. In fact, I have a new Bible that I bought and I'm kind of discombobulated because it's, it, the stuff is not where it should be on the page according to my visual memory from the last Bible. And it's just good to be familiar with your own copy of God's Word. So um, you keep that Bible as our gift to you. And we have been working through this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome that we call Romans. As you're finding that, um, by the way, happy birthday, Crosspoint. This past Monday, we uh, celebrated our 12th anniversary as a church. Actually, we didn't celebrate it at all. We just kind of just came and went. But praise God for 12 years. We started 12 years ago um, as just a, just a few of us. And we rented out the old Mountain Hill Schoolhouse up in Harris County five years ago, seven years ago. In 2010, we moved into this building, and the Lord has really been gracious to us. So uh, praise God, Lord willing, another 12 years, and then another 12 years after that, somewhere in there, um, I'm going to spontaneously combust in my last sermon the next guy up is going to come sweep my ashes into a little dustpan and pick up where I left off. Praise God. One of the advantages, one of the great advantages for the United States military, many of you in this room are somehow connected, either in or married to or retired from the United States military. You came here via the Army. One of the great advantages that we have in our wars that we fought recently is our ability to see at night. We have the capability to have these night vision goggles that allows our soldiers to see in the dark, which puts us at great advantage over the enemy. Spiritually speaking, we live in what the Bible calls a present darkness. And I think this text this morning that we're going to settle down in verses 25 and 26 in particular is a text that serves as kind of like spiritual night vision goggles. It doesn't show us everything that there is to see. The world is still fuzzy and hazy and dark. But it gives us a picture and allows us to see God more clearly and allows us to fight this fight of faith during these years remaining on this earth. So with that, let me read Romans 3, verse 21 through 26 again, and we'll settle down on verses 25 through 26. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is No distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. We looked at that word last week. It means a wrath-absorbing, wrath-satisfying, punishment-removing sacrifice by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Let me read the second half of verse 25 and 26 again, and I want us to zero in on something that Paul is saying to us there that I think, Lord willing, will have profound impact on the way we view life and God and, and all that we are. Picking up halfway through verse 25, listen, we're going to stare at this, this, these few sentences for the rest of this morning. He says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, I'm going to give you the outline up front so that you kind of know where we're going. Give you a little map. And then we're going to work our way back through this text and stare at it and, and consider some implications. So the first thing that we're going to look at is we are going to uh, l- just look at the logic of the text. Then we're going to look at this underlying truth that I want us to see. And then we're going to consider some implications that this truth will have on our life if we, if we can see it. So the logic of the text, this underlying truth, and then the implications for our life for this underlying truth. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, um, we, we come to this text so humbled that by your Holy Spirit you would cause it to be transcribed and written and guarded through the centuries for us. We come to your Bible knowing that it is your inspired, breathed out by you. It's not just inspiring, but you inspired it. You expired it. You breathed it out to be written down by men so that what they wrote down was exactly what you intended to be written down and it's been preserved and transmitted into languages that we can understand. And all of that was by your Holy Spirit and because it's your word, it has all authority. And because it's your word, it carries your power and because your Holy Spirit wrote this word, he comes alongside this word and he does your work. And so we come to you now asking you to show us beautiful things, Lord, that the terrain that we will venture on today has the ability to change us dramatically if we can see it. And so I pray that, that I would merely be a good tour guide today to this truth and that you would save people that do not know you, that you would make them alive, that you'd give them a new heart. And I pray for my friends in this room, those of us that are already trusting in Christ, that you would melt our hearts afresh and that we would fall more in love with you and your glory and the work of your son and that we would be more like you than when we came in this room this morning as a result of our time staring at your word and worshiping and responding to you. I pray all of this, Lord, for the glory of your name and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first, let's just look at the logic of this text. Notice in verses 25 and 26 that Paul uses this phrase, this was to show God's righteousness in verse 25, and then he repeats it almost verbatim in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. So Paul is saying that, that God is showing his righteousness as a result of this. So the this in verse 25 and the it at the beginning of verse 26 is referring to something and that is clearly, obviously, what immediately came before it. And so here's what Paul is summarizing this, maybe what some theologians have called the greatest paragraph ever written. Paul is summarizing it by saying that the content of this paragraph happened This, it, in verses 25 and 26, happened, God did it to show, to display, to demonstrate his righteousness. So the first thing we need to think about is, well, what is the this? Well, the this of verse 25 and the it of verse 26, which is referring to the same thing, is talking about what we've been staring at for these past couple weeks, which is the good news of the gospel. That's what Romans 1, 2, and 3 has been up to this point. Remember, it started off by Paul saying that God is righteous and he gives his righteousness to people who are undeserving. And in fact, people are so undeserving, Paul says in Romans 1, 2, and the first half of 3, that 
None are righteous, no, not one. So there is a level playing field for all peoples, regardless of whether we are religious people or irreligious people, or whether we are of this heritage or that heritage, whether we grew up in church or whether we didn't grow up in church, that all people start at the same point, and that is we are by nature, because we have inherited this nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve, we are by nature separated from God, sinners, accountable to a holy God who is righteous. And that sets up this great dilemma. In fact, it's the great dilemma of the Bible. And, and Paul uh, is, is really hearkening back to this dilemma that we see in the Old Testament, specifically in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where God appears to Moses as Moses is trying to lead sinful Israel. God has made Israel as a nation for himself. He has redeemed them. He's rescued them from Egyptian captivity. He's given them his law, and they still, redeem, they still rebel against him. And God tells Moses an incredible thing in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. He says that I am a God of steadfast love. I am committed to my name, and I will forgive iniquity, but I will by no means clear the guilty. So how is God going to forgive iniquity, but by no means clear the guilty? Because all of us are sinners. And so how is God going to do this? And well, that's what Romans 3, 21 through 24 has been up to this point. That the way God does that, the way God even allows sinful people to come into his presence who can do nothing to save themselves, is he puts his son Jesus forward to bear the wrath of God that should have been ours, to extinguish it, and because he's not just a good man, but because he is the perfect, eternal, holy son of God, he has enough righteousness to satisfy the punishment that should have been ours, and whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. And so Jesus takes our sin for those that are trusting in him. He satisfies the punishment of God that should be ours. And he rises again in victory, justifying his godness, his perfection, and now reigns supreme over all things. That's the, that's the stupendously, outrageously, scandalous good news of the gospel. You can do nothing to save yourselves. And in fact, God has engineered it that way. And he saves you by putting his son forward to bear the punishment that you deserve, then rising in victory over death in the grave, now being the king who can make dead sinners alive. So the good news of the gospel, friends, is that God accomplishes what we cannot by giving us what we cannot bring and making us alive. Man, we revved it up quick. I mean, we're just in the first 10 minutes and we're already getting the juices flowing. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the this of verse 25 and the it of verse 26 that Paul is referring to. And here he gives us a glimpse. I need you to see this. Here he gives us a glimpse as to God's purposes in even doing that. He says this is to show God's righteousness Look at the second half of verse 25. Because in his divine forbearance, it's not a word we use very often, his patience, his long-suffering. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In, in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, we see this same idea. Let me read this verse to you. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching in in Athens and Greece and Mars Hill, and he, he, uh, he stands up amongst these, these idolaters in, in Greece at the time, and he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, speaking of Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Look at that verse, in, uh, that word in verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. I love the, the King James Version. It says that, that in these times God winked at. 
That's a, a really descriptive phrase. And that's the idea that Paul is getting at here is God has shown his righteousness through his wrath-absorbing son who bears our punishment for God in our stead because God, it seems like, has winked at sin, but he hasn't. Let's pause and reflect at what's going on here. What is Paul's concern? Paul's concern is that people, us, might think that God has not truly judged sin in the lives of his people, and he's just kind of letting people get away with stuff. And so therefore, you know, God's kind of fudging. He's sort of leaning. He's like the dad. I don't know any dads like this. I know you probably don't either. But he's like the dad who gives his child a consequence for bad behavior. Or he's like the dad who is picking his child up from practice and um, who has said, no, you can't have a candy bar. We can't stop by Rite Aid and get a, a, a king-size Reese's sticks. We can't do that because we did it yesterday. And the kid kind of says, oh, come on, dad. And the dad pulls over and he kind of changes his word and he, he just, he gives in. I mean, I'm just so much, just, just, a, just a, a scenario like that that's probably never happened in anybody's life. He's a dad who's consistent. And Paul is concerned that by looking at the cross, we might think that God has just said, said, ah, well, you know, all that stuff I was talking about in the Old Testament about my holiness and my justice, that's, that's no big deal. I've just kind of kind of shake the etch-a-sketch and let's just kind of move on. Paul is saying that in the cross, we don't have God sort of fudging it. We have God actually demonstrating his righteousness because his wrath was really poured out on his son and Jesus really became sin for us and the righteousness of God was put on display to an onlooking universe. Let's just ask ourselves a question. This, this, it's even hard to kind of grab a hold of this, isn't it? Because by nature, we don't come to the scriptures and wrestle with whether or not God may be, listen to me carefully, we don't wrestle with by nature whether or not God is maybe being unjust because he is potentially being too lenient. We come to the scriptures thinking the, scriptures thinking the other thing, don't we? We assume that God is unjust in his judgment. And here Paul is actually defending God by saying that no, he has actually really, truly judged sin. Nobody's getting off Scott free. Let's just take in that we don't naturally come to the scriptures like that, do we? More on that later. But Paul is saying here that the whole purpose of the cross, the whole purpose of God the Son becoming a man, bearing our sin, bearing God's wrath, extinguishing it, rising again in victory over sin in the grave, has as its ultimate purpose not merely us, but to show God's righteousness to an onlooking world. And he continues on to say, in verse 26, this was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, and this is going to tie together that dilemma that we faced from Exodus chapter 34 where how could, God, how could God both be steadfast in his love and forgive iniquity, forgive sin, but by no means clear the guilty because we're all guilty. We just, we just read that in Romans 1, 2, and 3. We're all guilty. So how is God going to actually forgive people who are guilty, who can do nothing to make themselves unguilty? How is he going to forgive them? But how is he also going to by no means clear the guilty? How is God going to be both just and gracious? How are these two attributes of God that we can't put together oftentimes, how is God both of those things? And he says here that the cross puts that on display so that God is both just, in other words, he's holy, he maintains his holiness, he hasn't fudged it at all, but he's also the justifier. He is the one who makes sinners right 
through the work of his son. Here's Paul's main point of the logic of this text, I think, in verses 25 and 26. His main point is that the cross of Christ, and by the cross of Christ, I'm not just talking about his death, I'm talking about his resurrection, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, the cross of Christ, the cross of his son Jesus vindicates, vindicates God by showing that he is both just and merciful. That's the concern of Romans, that Paul is defending God's name and fame to an onlooking world. The Bible is radically God-centered. Romans is radically God-centered. And Paul's main concern is showing that God is consistent. He has not given in. He is both just and merciful. He is both holy and gracious. He is both right and kind. He is full of truth and grace. Which then leads us to point number two here, the underlying truth that I want us to see. I want us to see this. This is so important. And the truth is this, is that God's love for us is rooted in his commitment to and passion for the display of his own glory. So do you see that? Let's go back to verses 25. All of this gospel that we've been staring at, all of this stupendously good news, in verses 21 through 25, you might think halfway through verse 25 that Paul would say, God did all of this. This is kind of how we would logically maybe write this if we were writing it. This was all to show how God loved you so much. But he doesn't go that way. He doesn't root God's motivation in how much he loves us, but he roots God's motivation in his commitment to the display of his own glory. Friends, this may hit you the wrong way, but it's true, and as we stare at it, I I pray that it'll be hopeful for you. God is radically God-centered. That's the Bible. That's the message of the gospel. God loves us as a consequence of a love for his own glory. And God, because he has no imperfections and he's completely sinless and there's nothing evil or dark in him, God is the only being in the universe who can be radically self-centered and it actually be the greatest thing that he can do for everyone else. You see that? Listen to these. I'm just going to read a little, a little a grouping of Old Testament passages that give us a kind of picture. Give us, they're kind of like night vision goggles that will help us see this truth. Let me just read some text. They'll be up on the screen and you can write them down if you want to stare at them later. Psalm 106, verses 6 through 8. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Verse 8, yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. If we were writing verse 8, we would say, yet he saved them because he loved us so much. But that's not the way the psalmist goes. He says, yet he saved them for his namesake that he might make known his mighty power. Doesn't that sound like Romans 3, 25 and 26 that God does all of this to show, to demonstrate his glory? Joshua 7, verses 7 through 9. And Joshua said, alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan? And by the way, that word is pronounced Jordan. 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 Not Jordan. Just throwing it out there for you. At all. To give us into the hands of the Amorites. To destroy us. Would that we had been content to dwell 
beyond the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? So God has saved them. He's brought them over, and now they've been routed by their enemies. What are we going to do? Verse 9, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what? This is what Joshua grounds his plea to God in. Not in God, but we're Israel and you really love us. He says, and what will you do for your great name? Joshua knew this instinctively. That the grounding for God's love for his people is in his love for his own fame. And that's the angle that Joshua takes to God when he prays to him. 1 Samuel chapter 12 verses 20 through 22 And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, for my name's sake, this is God speaking to Israel in their disobedience, for my name's sake, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? Profaned, My glory I will not give to another. One more, Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 26, the great promise of the new covenant. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is God speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, telling telling him to give them these words of comfort and the promise of the new covenant. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I, verse 23, will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes and I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 26 is one of the sweetest verses in the whole Bible. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Friends, if you grew up on a false gospel that says, do your best and God will meet you halfway. Friends, that's a lie. Because you can't do your best and you can't meet God halfway. The good news of the gospel is that God reaches down and gives you the very thing that he commands. He does heart surgery, takes out a heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, and causes you to walk in his statutes. That's sanctification. But he does it all. Why? Not because God is up in heaven with a four-leaf clover hoping he loves me, he loves me not. He does it all, whatever he does, for to show the demonstration of his glory to an onlooking world. Psalm 115, verse 3, I think it is. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. So before we move on to looking at some implications, let me just give you a picture in your mind, an illustration. Think of two circles that represent sort of everything that is. One circle is how most of the world instinctively views the universe. Here's this huge circle, and at the very center of that circle is man. It's us. And certainly God has made it all, but God sort of instinctively by default in this worldview is seen there to serve the center of the universe, which is us. Yes, he's all powerful, but, but he's, his power really has as its primary motivation us. I think that is instinctively how most people view the world 
even people that I think are Christians but just have not been taught well, and then by default they come to the Bible and they look at the Bible through those lenses, and it leads to a thousand problems. The biblical perspective that I think these scriptures are clearly giving us is to picture this other circle that is everything that is. And at the center of this circle is God. And everything exists for him. In fact, my favorite verse in the Bible, surprise, it's from Romans, is Romans 11.36 that says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forevermore. So whatever's going on in your life, because either all things means all things or it means nothing at all, exists, is happening, has passed through God's sovereign hands in some way for the display of his glory to an onlooking world. Friends, we exist for God. God does not exist for us. That's the point of Romans 3 verses 25 and 26. Okay, that's wonderful. I think that's good theology anyway. (laughs) This is glorious and it's important, but how, but but let's, let's be honest, let me confess this to you. It feels high, doesn't it? It feels lofty. It, it's, 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 it's all-encompassing. It feels like it's 30,000 feet in the air. How do we grab this glorious truth, and how do, we, how do we appropriate it into our own lives? How do we cause this glorious truth to actually not just stay in the clouds, but, but land in our life and actually change us and inform us and help us in on Tuesday? when you're having a horrible day. Four implications for seeing this are ways that we can, I think, appropriate this into our own lives. Thoughts, implications. First, seeing this enables us to worship God more properly. And I think that is really important because I think that's why we have been created. And by worship, I'm not merely talking about Uh, just what we do when we gather here for, you know, a couple hours on Sunday or on Wednesday nights occasionally. And I'm certainly not just talking about our singing corporately as a church, as important as those things are. When I'm talking about worship, I'm talking about the whole posture of the Christian life, our response to all of God for all that He is. Seeing this truth, I think, enables us to actually live out the purposes of our creation Better, it trains us to see and understand and interact with God as he has revealed himself. Here's this truth that I want you to see, and it's not original to me. I've read it from people that are much smarter than I am, and I think it's really true, and it's been helpful to me over the years. And it's this idea that to behold something is to become like it. When we truly behold something this glorious, the actual act of beholding it, of seeing it, has transformative power. Let me show it to you in the scriptures in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's writing a letter to this church, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, he says this, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Look at that midway through verse 18 again. Beholding the glory of the Lord, seeing God biblically, seeing the glory and the God-centeredness of God, has the effect of transforming us into his image. When you see something beautiful that you love, it has the power to transform you. I mean, just a tiny little silly example. Being half Italian, growing up the son of an Italian coach, watching the Rocky movies was required watching when I was a kid. Right? Sliced alone. 
next to Vince Lombardi, probably one of the greatest Italian-Americans of all time. And I can remember we would watch Rocky. And remember, you know, I mean, who, what kid doesn't watch Rocky and you don't get out and you just want to go into some meat market and just start hitting some slabs of meat? You know, you just, you just want to box after you see Rocky because there's just this message that just makes you want to respond to it, right? And I can remember my brother and I, we got these batting gloves and we would cut the fingers off because Stallone had these half like finger exposed gloves that he'd walk around and he'd have this tennis ball that, you know, and we even thought about like getting a chicken to try and chase a chicken. If you remember that scene where he was trying to work on his, some of you were too young, you, it's, a, it's a classic of American cinema. But there was something about Stallone, Rocky Balboa, running up these steps in Philadelphia as he was training to fight Apollo Creed that I was just like, yeah, man, I just want to, I just want to be like that, right? I mean, that's a movie. But it gives us a kind of glimpse is that when we, when we see something that, that captures something in us, it, it has a, a kind of power to move us and transform us and want us to want to be like that thing, doesn't it? On an infinitely greater scale, when we see God biblically, oh, friends, I pray that it would have this effect of 2 Corinthians 3 on us, that it would transform us. It would transform us. And so let's not make this overly pragmatic. The, the thing I really want to happen here is that we would just see this. That, that I would be like a tour guide and we'd be, we'd be walking through you know, some beautiful landscape and we break through the trees and we point to the glorious mountain and all of us just stop as we are tired on our journey of looking for it and we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That God would do this. That he would save a wicked wretch like me. Friends, beholding that has transformative power in the life of a Christian. Secondly, an implication is that this, this weans us from self-absorption. That's a beautiful byproduct of seeing God in this way. It weans us from self-absorption. Many people... In fact, I dare say many Christians who are earnest and well-meaning because they have not been well-taught by default approach God as if he were there to serve us. And this leads to an unbiblical and pragmatic view of God in the Christian life. And what do I mean by the word pragmatic? It means seeing God as a kind of like a Pez dispenser. You know the little candy dispenser? If we just hit it the right way, it will, it will cough out a, a blessing for us. And if we, friends, just notice the, the spiral, the descent here of self-absorption. Martin Luther, the great reformer, says that the human heart is by nature curved in on itself. Just notice the progression. If we approach the God of all the universe in that way, seeing him almost on a subconscious level as if he were there to serve us, then that's the way we're going to view everything around us. If we can do that with our creator God, friends, it's not a great leap at all for us to do that with each other. It's not a great leap at all for us to do that with our churches. Friends, I would venture to say that one of the reasons that, by and large, the American church is very unhealthy is because pastors and teachers don't preach this, which lets people stay in their curved-in state. And because pastors care so much and are scared about the opinion of people, they, they fear telling people that God's primary motivation is not love for them, but love for himself. And they think that that may rub people the wrong way. But what it does is it leaves people in their self-absorption. And so they approach God like that. They approach the church like that. They approach other people like that. And what it does is it causes any fruit that we bear to ultimately be rotten. Because we just want, we want, we want, we want. We want from our spouses. We want from our children. We want, we want our husband or wife to be like this. We want our kid to be awesome. We want the Facebook awesome picture. 
We want our church to do everything the way we want it to be done. Friends, just think about the lunacy of that mindset. We've got hundreds of people in this room. Just imagine if we just followed everybody's preference. We would be so ineffective and unfruitful and we would be chasing our own tails because the people that we would be trying to please would be ourselves. And it creates in us an addiction to our own pleasures and preferences. And when we see God this way, did I drop my glasses? When we see, when we see, I just need them there as a kind of safety blanket, like Linus's blanket, I just need it there. When we see God this way, it cures us from that. It helps to cure us from that. This truth is like radiation. It's like chemotherapy for self-absorption. And don't we all need that? I need weekly doses of this. Thirdly, this truth serves to fuel missions to an unreached world. If we see this, it lights a fire in us for something beyond just our own spiritual intake. Listen to what the Apostle John says in 3 John, 3 John. It's a short little letter right before Revelation. 3 John, just one chapter, verses 5 through 8. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. What's going on here? The Apostle John is writing a letter to the church encouraging them to support these traveling missionaries who are stopping over in these churches for a while. He's saying, refresh these brothers, support their work, encourage them, because they are going out for the sake of his name. John is rooting the motivation for a New Testament mission-sending missions-going church in the fame of God's name to show, to demonstrate, to put on display the glory of God. Friends, he's not just saying that that's the motivation for these people who are called to do this. Verse 8, he says, therefore, we ought to, because our hearts should line up with their hearts, we ought to support people like these so that we may be fellow workers for the truth. What truth? The truth of the display of the glory of God in the face of His Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, if we could see this as a church, oh, it would transform us. And I, I think we see this, but we need to see it afresh and again and again. Friends, this is why, friends, this is why we don't want to be a selfish church that just wants to get bigger and bigger. This is why two couples from this church over the past 12 years have decided that they're going to move their families to other places around the world, to unreached people groups that believe false things. This is why a family in our church that will be coming back for furlough this July for a year would take their marriage and their two, now three young children, all under the age of five, and take them across the world to Central Asia to an unbelieving nation full of nominal Muslims give up the comforts of home and life here in America so that for the fame of his name to take the gospel to a city full of millions of people who only has a handful of believers. This is why a young couple just recently would take everything that they have, sell it, and go to Kosovo to take the gospel to unreached peoples there for the fame of his name. This is why we as a church don't spend money on frivolous things like stuff for us just merely to make our Sunday morning experience more pleasurable. And I hate that word experience, by the way. 
It's as if God is there to give us an experience. Just, all right, just rant over. Just, I could go on forever on that. Just, we are here to serve God. We're here to worship him. Not experience, you know, kumbaya goosebumps. I need to breathe for half a second. I'm starting to get angry. I can feel it. Friends, this is why in years to come, we want to send young men out from this church to plant churches because we think Columbus doesn't need like megaloth churches that are just testimonies to their own glory, but we need lots of churches for lots of people that might not come to Crosspoint in different corners of the city to take the gospel for the fame of his name. This is why, this is why in a couple years, Lord willing, we will send a great young preacher, Will Hawk, out, and maybe a bunch of you will go with him, and you will go with him to plant a church in our city for the fame of his name. This is why we are not just trying to get everybody to gather around to make ourselves awesome, to be as awesome as we can. This is why we gather to scatter. We give to sin. This is why we come to go for the sake of his name. That's what seeing this truth will do for the life of a church. Oh, that we would see it. And finally, fourthly, seeing this truth helps us endure and understand trials in this life. Follow my logic here quickly and then we'll be done. If the display of God's glory in the cross is the primary thing in the universe and not us, then that means our lives are meant to reflect that great truth. And then that opens up our lives to be able to reflect God's good. If the point of the universe is not us getting and receiving and arriving at a place of comfort, but if the point of the universe is that everything would reflect the glory of God, that opens up the possibility, as Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, is that all things exist for the glory of God. So triumph and tragedy, riches and poverty, sickness and health, all of it, all of it exists for the glory of God. If my health, wealth, and prosperity is not the end goal of this life, then that frees whatever comes my way to be something that I use as leverage to make much of God. And friends, that will, man, that'll put steel in your spine. That'll give you perspective because now you come biblically to the text and you know that God is not obligated to make these 80 or 90 years comfortable. In fact, for some of us, in his kindness and mercy, he will send great tragedy and trial because he knows that we will cling more tightly to him and that will have a unique power to display the surpassing worth of Christ to an onlooking world. Just as a little pastoral observation, you may be just taking this in and it might be hitting you hard, but that deserved more of a weak amen. More than a weak amen. Someday in the future, maybe that might cause some of you to jump up and shadow box like Balboa. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Why do all these things work together for our good? Because God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. Not primarily. Because God loves himself and the display of his glory. And he is able to take all things and make much of his name through us. And here's the really good news. Is that as a consequence of this truth, he guarantees that maybe not, in fact, probably likely not on these 90 years, 
But someday we will make it safely home and we will be before him forever in eternity and we will enjoy the glory. Jonathan Edwards, the great teacher of the American Great Away, the great pastor in the, 19, in, the, in the 1700s, preached on heaven so often and he said that heaven is a place of surpassing, ever-increasing joy. That we will someday behold this truth so purely, so undiluted that we will not need night vision goggles anymore in this present darkness and we will stand before him face to face and we will be with him forever and ever and ever. But in the meantime, while we walk through this present darkness, God has given us these night vision goggles of this truth in the scripture to help us find our way and link arms together so that we might walk through this life beholding the glory of God. Let's pray. Before I pray, let me just address... If you came into this room not believing and that's been become clear to you, I, I want you to take that as a wonderful, gracious sign that God is opening your eyes. He's allowing you to peek through the forest and to see this great mountain of his truth. I think that's evidence that God is giving you a heart to believe. You don't need to scurry off and look inward and think about all the things that you need to do to make yourself worthy of God because that's a fool's errand. It's a, it's an, it's a never-ending scavenger hunt. You, it'll never end. You need to l- let go of your own self-inclination And you need to behold this truth that you can do nothing in and of yourselves to make yourself right with God. But God has sent his son to satisfy his holiness for all those that would believe. And he, in fact, gives the ability to those whom he saves to believe. So if God is giving you those eyes to see and that heart to believe, you don't need to scurry off into activity. You need to look up and believe and turn from trusting in yourself and put your hope in him. Do that even now. Say, God, come and capture my heart. I behold your glory and I know that my only hope is in you. Do that even now, friends, and do not leave this room. Do not leave this building without talking to somebody that you know to be a Christian about what you are seeing and what's stirring in your heart today. And for the rest of us that are already trusting in that great truth, already believing in Jesus, all my prayers for my heart and your heart that this would not just be like water off a Labrador, that we would just shake it off once we get out of the lake and chase another tennis ball. God, may this sink into our hearts and transform us. Fathers, we come now to respond to you. Would, you. would you do these things? Would we behold the great truth that your mercy for us is rooted in your commitment to your own fame and therefore we can trust it because while we will change, you never will. Show your righteousness afresh to us as we see the glory of the cross. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.